0: so welcome to the second podcast in trump watch sussex i'm doug haynes and i'm at the British Library, at the Echo Centre of the British Library in London, to talk to Dan Crider, who's a Fulbright scholar at the Eccles Centre. He's a, a political scientist in the Department of Politics from uh, Brandeis University in the United States. And we're here really to talk about the question of clusters of influence in the Trump administration. So um, I'm going to ask Dan to begin with how, for us over here, it's very difficult to understand all the different forces at play in the Trump administration. It doesn't seem to make very much sense to us. How would you help us begin to understand um, these these clusters of influence, these camps, if you will, that, that Trump has surrounded himself with?
1: Well, it's a good question. And it's one that I think all Americans are still struggling with themselves. But I can at least offer you um, a very general roadmap to the way that Trump has organized different aspects of administration and advisement uh, in his White House, one of the things I would um, suggest is that we can arrange these different camps in something like a rank order or a spectrum. Uh, The rank order for me that matters the most has to do with expertise. And there are some segments of his team that are very seasoned, uh, veteran uh, political operatives in various spheres and some that are not. And so the rank order, I would suggest to you uh, would go something like this. Number one are what he calls my generals. He likes to personalize oh. all of these. And he
0: likes a military metaphor yes, as well, doesn't he, does.
1: he? and he likes to be personally responsible for them. But he calls them my generals. And these are really old pros, veterans, seasoned military leaders. In the Defense Department, there's Mattis and National Security as McMaster, who's actually written uh, a very fine book on presidential and military relations in the 60s. Uh, Home security, John Kelly. These are very seasoned professionals who have tons of years of experience uh, making their way through American politics and through the White House and through Washington DC. The second group I want to point out in terms of expertise is what I would call Big Capital. Big Capital includes Tillerson at State, uh, Mnuchin at Treasury, couple people from Goldman Sachs, and these are old pros in the kind of global neoliberal uh, capitalist order. Gary Cohn, National Economic Council, Uh, people like that. Icon and Ross are from the uh, investor world, but these are all men who have a great deal of experience in managing uh, transnational capitalism. Third category I'd point to, we're going down the rankings now, um, are what I would call party stalwarts. And Attorney General Sessions uh, has his um, believers and non-believers, but he's a seasoned Republican who spent many years in the US Congress. Chief of Staff Priebus is also obviously a Republican Party operative. Um, I guess I would put Kellyanne Conway in this category as well. Uh, There are people like Price in Health and Human Services, Acosta in Labor, EPA is led by this fellow Pruitt, Uh, former Attorney General of Oklahoma. These are all people who have spent years decades in the American Republican Party and who know the layout of the party very well. They're kind of sprinkled around uh, various agencies and in the White House. Fourth category I would call unqualified mavericks. And these are people like DeVos in education, uh, Perry in energy, and Ben Carson in HUD, housing and urban development. And actually these are people who know almost nothing about the bureaucracies that they've been asked to supervise. And what's striking about this, I think, is that um, they've been given unfavored or disfavored departments where mismanagement and incompetence actually would be functional for the Republican Party and for Trump. He's, I think, chosen them very nicely.
0: So it's about the system working rather than not working if education doesn't work out so well. Exactly.
1: These are people to sort of preside over the degradation of federal programs in each of these spheres. Perry had no idea what the Department of Energy actually does, and I'm not sure he does now either, for that matter. Uh, The fifth category, and we're down towards the bottom now in terms of expertise, is what I would call America Firsters, and these are the nationalists, and I would also say white nationalists, depending on individual ideologies, Mm -hmm. that are in the inner circle in the White House, and of course the most famous is Steve Bannon, uh, I would also put Steven Miller here and a fellow who's been working on terrorism related issues named Sebastian Gorka. These are all interesting people to follow uh, because they represent the least experienced uh, and the most ideological members of the Trump administration. Um, and they're quite close to Trump uh, in the inner circle. As I say, I think there's a relationship between expertise and likelihood of success. And in my view, these are um, advisors who have relatively little experience with governing at this level, uh, relatively little experience working with the Republican Party's various competing factions. And um, at the same time, they are proposing the most extreme kinds of policy changes. And that's usually not a very good mix. Low expertise, high Extremism.
0: So, so why have they been put in there if it's not all that functional?
1: Well, it's a good question. I, I, think actually Trump himself, I would put in this category of American foresters. He does not have a lot of experience. Okay. And he's not a very capable um, ad- administrator in at the national political level. He, um, I think, has shown himself to be someone who really lacks uh, the judgment and the and the, the many years of of experience it, one needs to mm-hmm. manage this kind of really quite complex uh, structure of American national politics.
0: So, how are these different camps going to get along with each other? What kind of dynamic can we expect for from this? I mean, we've seen the first six months. Can we get a clearer picture from from that from that period? Is there, is there a way we can project what's going to happen? How it'll play out?
1: Well, it's a good question. I don't really have a full answer, but. There's another final category I would call cosmopolitan ciphers, and in this category I would put- (laughs) It's a good category. Not bad, is it? It's Jared and Ivanka, the kind of golden couple who lurk in the shadows, they're cosmopolitan, but their particular political ideology I think remains largely unknown to us. I think they're going to be some people who are so uh, intimately close to Donald Trump that they will help him try to sort out Hmm. um the the belligerence and the com- competitiveness between these other factions right i also think that you know the last 6 months have given a little bit of an indication of how hard it is for extremists to achieve what they want to extre- to to achieve what they want to achieve and here i'm thinking again of the american firsters and um, their attempt to create a, what i would consider a muslim travel ban um I think it's fair to say that this is the group that's encountered the most resistance over the first six months. Um, Steve Bannon was moved out of the National Security Council. It's very strange that he was on it to begin with, but he's been moved Mm. out. Um, You know, there have been a series of setbacks that include the Muslim travel ban, which has been kind of modified and has now um, a new life pending further court review. but these are people who are, I think, going to continue to run into problems as they try to implement a more nationalist agenda.
0: But are they important for the administration that you have these kinds of almost kind of global level wrangling about about, about their ideas? Mm. In a sense, even, even if they're not successful, we get a very strong idea about what kind of thing the Trump administration is supposed to stand for. If these outrageous and unworkable, but nevertheless highly headline-grabbing ideas are out there. I mean, that is a way in which these things might might be working.
1: I think that's right and I think that these people are also responsible for signaling to the extremist voter base in the United States that the administration is working on their behalf.
0: Even if it's failing though?
1: Exactly. I think that's right. That at least someone is trying to
0: pursue some of these reforms. Fighting the power on their behalf. I
1: think that's right. Fighting the good fight for um, that part, that section of the American Republican Party
0: which was so important for the vote, after all.
1: I agree, and these are, you know, one thing about American politics is that the clock is ticking right away. And now we're less than a year and a half away from the midterm elections of 2018. Mm. So there are hundreds of US representatives who will be running for re-election and who have to decide where they stand with reference to this administration. And of course, Trump is already beginning to think about re-election um, American politics runs on this very regular temporal system and they're preparing now already to be able to signal, run the campaign ads that show that they've been pursuing these kinds of interests.
0: And lived up to the election promises rather than being mired in sort of Washington rhetoric. That's right. Yeah. yeah,
1: that's exactly right. You know, he would say in his stump speeches, I don't care about political correctness. Mm. I don't care about norms. I'm going to actually speak on your behalf, Mm. people who are disfranchised and who consider themselves victimized by um, the the way the American economy and American politics have treated them.
0: So the way that these groups, these camps work with each other is sometimes there are people who who need to be functional and get things done and there are other people who are there to not be that functional, but to be a sort of outward facing ideological group keeping another part of the constituency sweet.
1: I think that's right. And I mean, we shouldn't, I think, underestimate their accomplishments. And if you ask Bannon, he famously has some set of, I don't know, eight or 10 whiteboards in his office that are filled with lists of policy goals Hmm. that he is marking off with a check mark one by one. And I think in his mind, and there have been some some substantial, although um, perhaps under the radar accomplishments in his mind, they're making very good progress on the promises that Trump, you know, listed on his website and, and kind of ran through in his standard stump speeches. So I think Bannon mm. believes that he's there to get things done. And he has a very particular vision. It's it's not just nationalist, it's anti statist. He's used the phrase deconstruct the administrative state, which is kind of strangely political scientific or postmodernist. Yeah. Yeah. But he wants to start to break down the instruments of national planning and national, social and political and economic administration. Another quote from Bannon uh, is that he said, we didn't come here to do small things. And so I really believe that he mm. wants to get a lot of, of very important, tangible things done for his for, for his part of the Republican Party constituency.
0: Okay, thanks. Um, so maybe connected with that is mm. um, thinking about the longer history then of, of US government and can we, can we see Trump and the Trump administration in the context of a longer history of, of U.S. government? Because okay. what you're describing is quite an unusual assemblage of different interests and parties. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how can we kind of look at this more historically? To, is, there, is there precedent for this? Is there, is there something very new? Mm-hmm. How can we think about this? Well, it's a
1: good question. I think there are a couple ways to look at it. One is with reference to the coalition that he's assembled and these various factions inside his administration. On the one hand, it looks a little bit like FDR's first 100 days or his early years of the New Deal, where he really loved to bring in people with very, very different social backgrounds, political constituencies, and worldviews. Of course, the Democratic Party at the time was very um, schizophrenic, hmm. divided between Southern conservatives and Northern Liberals. He loved to mix people up and get these kinds of competitions underway, sometimes giving two people the same portfolio to see who could somehow win the day. Um, But I think what we're seeing here is something different, and that is um, a chief executive with no political experience. Because after all, managing that kind of complex um, coalition requires a great deal of political judgment and skill. Mm. And he's also introduced a lot of people with almost no governing experience at all. Um, the other way I think that it helps to look at American history is that when you see someone like Bannon say, we didn't come here to do small things, I always worry about people like that, because in my view, this really belies a fundamental misunderstanding of the American constitutional system. So uh, it's
0: about the p- political history as well, and there's a the lack of understanding of what that might mean.
1: Absolutely, and a, and a lack of understanding of how the system works, how it was designed to work, and what it really represents. And Trump too, I think, is completely indifferent to American political history. He said recently of the Civil War, "Why could that one not have been worked out? <laughs> why?" People ask me that question. Why didn't we work that
0: they, one? They they ask Donald that question. Yeah, they ask, he's the one who ask, knows.
1: Yeah, h- they would ask him. Of course, because he's the go-to would, guy. They would want to know what he thinks about it. Mm. You know? People, and he says, "People ask me that question. You know, we could have worked that one out." And on the one hand. Um, it's amusing in its um, ignorance, I guess, but to me there are several things that are very significant about this kind of thing. Um, One is that it might well play into revisionist interpretations of the Civil War that really downplay um, the moral necessity of eradicating slavery and somehow portray Southern whites as victims um, that need to be... Um, somehow restored to their proper role in American society. Yeah. Um, another, I mean, I that's lost
0: fe- cause. Exactly. Agenda lying just behind sort of that, muddying, just, just in there somewhere. Yes, yeah,
1: just muddying our moral history and our moral compass. And the fact that, in fact, this is one of the gleaming golden moments in American political history is that Lincoln uh, dedicated the nation to um, to end slavery yeah. and to and to uh, coalesce. Um, under a new ideology of, mm. of, of liberalism,
0: rather than working it out in some kind of deal, which would uh, kind of it, deal, this is something you had to fight about. You know? Real estate, actually. Yeah, yeah, right, and
1: land. I mean, that's bad enough, but but I think to me there's something even more fundamentally disturbing, and that is that <clears throat> the American Constitution created a an executive that was meant to be constrained, and all of this talk about doing great things and um, disrupting old orders and deconstructing the state, um, I think skips over the basic fact that the American political constitution, the American constitution was really written to compel uh, moderation Mm -hmm. and compromise. And that um, presidents have a very particular role to play that's um, really more about constraints and weakness than it is about leadership and success. And I think um, the scholarship on the American president has, has made this clear uh, over the last 40 or 50 years.
0: So he doesn't have a conception of it or he just won't be bound by it?
1: I think it's both. I think he, I think he doesn't have a conception of it. Somehow, oh. in Bannon's view and in Trump's view, um, there have been corrupt players in this office for some time now and that it requires someone with great courage and clarity to simply um, refuse to abide by political correct traditions but in fact the system is very very carefully designed um, to compel the president to to, to persuade people yeah um, and to bring people to the center
0: which is of course something that he doesn't want to do this is not about getting a big tent together even if we have lots of different interests roiling around in the administration?
1: No, that's the thing. He tends to demonize people who don't think the way he thinks. Mm. Uh, Those aren't people worthy of compromising with. That's actually a sign of weakness, in his view. And and paradoxically, that's a sign of great strength and success when it comes to the American political tradition.
0: And the way that he goes about making his, well, I mean, he has a very unusual personal style as well, doesn't he? He uh, he doesn't want to seek compromise or deals in that kind of way, and he has a very particular way of, of, of practicing politics. Does American political science have much to say at the moment about his very particular practices, the things that he does, like his direct tweeting at the public, for example?
1: Right. <coughs> so uh, I guess I would say um, that in one way his communications with his base are um, kind of amplified versions of what we've seen over the last 20 or 30 years Mm. because traditionally presidents have been seen as people who must uh, work with other elites in both parties directly personally persuade them build coalitions that are cross party to get policy um, through Congress that's kind of the traditional old-fashioned sense of the American presidency. Starting in the 1960s or so um, people like John Kennedy and for that matter Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon um, started to develop more uh, technologically adept techniques for talking directly to the American public. Mm. And of course Kennedy was great on television. He's a very bright man so he was great at question and answer press conferences. In other words, not speaking directly to other elites in both parties, but actually speaking directly to the American public.
0: But FDR had his fireside chats, didn't he? So there is is a longer tradition. Goes even
1: further back, you're quite right, and Woodrow Wilson was very good at it. Um, Teddy Roosevelt with the bully pulpit. Um, It it is a longer tradition, um, but in the 19th century, certainly, Abraham Lincoln was a good example of someone who very rarely addressed the public, and he actually thought it was um, improper. For him to address the public directly, that there was something unseemly about that. That his real work was within um, American political institutions.
0: Well, maybe the 20th century has given us. Has created a need for a, a more direct and personal contact with presidents from Teddy Roosevelt on. In some ways, yeah, that, as the media change, right. so does you know. So you have to sort of address address those changes from you know from radio through TV to now social media. I, right. I guess. I
1: mean, I think that's right. Part of it is the means have developed so rapidly that presidents are are well advised to uh, mm. exploit them. And part of it, I think, is strategic and instrumental on the part of presidents, which is that they see an opportunity to step around mediating institutions and speak directly to their constituents.
0: Like Obama with the videos that he put on his website, for example.
1: Exactly, he was doing the same thing. And I used to get emails from his political organization all the time that were very carefully targeted to my internet behavior, which as we know now leaves all kinds of exhaust, through our cookies and so on that can be tracked and that allows for political operatives to actually target us quite carefully. Obama did that um, in both of his election campaigns, for example, to great effect. And at the time, I think people on the left were celebrating this, yeah. but it was a very dark set of developments.
0: So there's a kind of Pandora's box that uh, is open now by Twitter, because the Obama campaign really t- democratized mm-hmm. the first election by with uh, by using Twitter and, and enfranchising people and getting young people, mm-hmm. people who ordinarily wouldn't be engaged in the process, mm-hmm. it really worked for for him. But, mm-hmm. you, but you're saying there's something—it's turned. It, was it or was it dark then, or, or is it turned subsequently? I, re- I
1: remember teaching about it eight years ago and thinking that this would be tricky if it's in the wrong hands. I mean, I think part of our um, our reaction to it was was, was affected by Obama's. Um, His what shall we say his his good honor? Hmm. um, And the fact that he was a mainstream moderate Democratic politician he didn't seem to be abusing the technology over much, but with Twitter and with the internet and with our email um, Political organizations can now track our behavior and target us for certain kinds of appeals that have been very carefully tested to activate certain kinds of latent attitudes and that can help compel us to actually behave in certain kinds of ways. Mm. That is extremely worrying to me. And we're only at the front end of that kind of technology.
0: Yeah, and maybe uh, the Obama campaign, the first Obama campaign, it was about the campaign, whereas with Donald Trump, it's about everything. It never stops. So it's about -hmm. about being in government as well. And Mm -hmm. maybe that's a, a difference. Obama did not. Constantly fire tweets at the public after he after he got into power. It wasn't quite like that
1: at all And I mean, um, you know, we can imagine that Trump if he's very intelligent is using a lot of this chaotic uh, social media behavior to Basically distract us and the mainstream so-called mainstream media Mm. from the real work of his administration um, I'm not sure how strategic he really is. This is the way he behaves.
0: Well, maybe it's just a kind of natural attitude for these kinds of this this kind of misdirection, like a like a magician. He's uh, making you look over here while he does something over there.
1: I think that's quite right. And I think I think he's this is one of the things he's very good at. I think he has kind of a sixth sense for how to gain <coughs> people's attention and actually distract them from. Um, what what really is more important work being done elsewhere?
0: Hmm. Interesting. Um, and while we're thinking about American political history and, and and what he is doing with it, what this administration is doing with it, um, are there other instances of where his, history more broadly is being used or misused or invoked in different ways? I mean, you mentioned the Civil War example um, as th- 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 showing showing how other agendas are at work in the way that he treats historical events or the way he thinks about history. Are there other things that we could look at that would be instructive to us?
1: Well it's a good question. I think in general he's indifferent to history and he has very little use for it. He does seem to touch upon it with reference to race from time to time. He uh, misrepresents African-American history. He's done it repeatedly. Um, He has referred in these kind of strange ways to the Civil War he seems to be kind of muddying and um, sub, subverting kind of the role that the African American freedom struggle has played in the long arc of the development of American democracy. I'm trying to think of other examples. Um, you know, he disparaged um, uh, he disparaged Senator um, John McCain for having served in the Vietnam War and had being a prisoner of war. So he he uses history in much the same way he uses contemporary events, which is to disparage people and to confuse people, in my view, and actually muddy our understanding of how politics works.
0: And it's very unusual, isn't it, to be so opportunistic, especially around you know, the Vietnam War, he's a, he's a vet. I mean, mm-hmm. we're supposed to respect those people, of aren't we? Course. We're supposed to respect the, the thing, however right or wrong we might feel the war was, people who served. We, vets are sac- sacrosanct, aren't of they? Course. It's a remarkable thing that he did there. Yeah.
1: It's, it's amazing how much success he has had in reorganizing some of these narratives and um, and turning some of our conventional wisdom on its face. It's, mm. really, it's very, very surprising to me.
0: And, and kind of pointing some of these thoughts towards the views of white nationalists mm-hmm. as, a, as a constituency, um, that's, that's something you see happening in a sort of careful way.
1: I think that's right. And I think you know, when I um, joined Twitter about eight months ago, I signed up for many, um, what's it called? I, I, I followed many people on Twitter from the right, including the white nationalist right, just to see what kind of use they were making of this technology. And it's very um, it's very surprising, and it's very convincing in a way, but they have their own political universe. And they talk about things in ways that are, in some ways, internally consistent and um, are very, very effective in um, criticizing kind of traditional operating procedures on the left or even in the center of politics. Um, and that's what's, I think, also very um, kind of, well, it's, it's, it's worth watching in the future is that Americans are con- continuing to sort themselves into uh, different kinds of camps themselves, ideologically and even spatially. And we're really starting to follow different kinds of news sources, read different kinds of material, believe different kinds of uh, truths. And it's growing increasingly difficult to reconcile those two.
0: And this is really becoming a thing, isn't it, about understanding modern politics and algorithms and social media and and the bubbles that people start to live in. I I wonder whether political science, where political science is on understanding that at the moment, because it does feel like new territory Mm -hmm. and there are all kinds of new developments. Um, Memes, for example, these Internet memes that pop up as these persuasive, propagandistic devices, but only for some people and not for others. Um, it feels like a real challenge to political st- to, you know, to, to work out how this is finally going to you know uh, how it's going to create constituencies and how older political ideas will survive in this mm-hmm. kind of in this new media
1: it's hard to see where we'll where we'll end up but I think one of the things that strikes me is that the efforts of social scientists and historians and and journalists who are doing a lot of very heavy lifting right now the efforts of, of people like that to actually understand the causes and effects and the technology of the use of social media for these mobilizing purposes. Those efforts will always lag behind, I think, um, corporations, firms, political consultants who have much greater expertise, um, ease of use, international uh, contacts, uh, and and generally the the technical and the financial resources that, that that are really required to use them effectively
0: yeah and it feels like um, we're kind of lifting free of these larger ideological schemas that once sustained politics for, for, for hundreds of years um, and ideas about left and right and center. I mean, my students are, you know they, they they know but they don't know it with the certainty that people did a generation ago mm-hmm. and maybe this kind of reorienting of what of what allegiances and camps are mm-hmm. is actually really corrosive to to to, to to the political discourse with which which we thought would never really go away. I, 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 I don't know if that's a question but I mean it's something that, that bothers me.
1: I agree with you and I on the one hand I guess I think that political organizations have to adapt to changing circumstances on the ground. Right? They should be smart enough and nimble enough to invent new kinds of platforms and appeals, mm. coherent ones, broad-based ones that somehow do resonate with the lived experience of Americans or or Brits, for that matter. Yeah. But um, but but something is lost when these long-standing traditions, I think, are are again discarded or confused or muddied. I mean, there are moments in world history where um, new kinds of social or political problems kind of cut across traditional political party boundaries. And I think now we're in a moment when cultural concerns about globalization. Um, Are feeding a new form of populism that um, is anti-globalist, that is more nationalistic, and it may also be more authoritarian. And somehow the 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 traditional parties are accommodating themselves to that fact. I think the Republican Party is is ahead of the Democratic Party in the United States on that
0: score. So we're talking really about habits of democracy, Mm -hmm. aren't we? As well, I mean, in in the the, the ways the, the kinds of protocol by, by which people address each other and think of, and, and exchange politically those kinds of things mm-hmm. are obviously being tested very strongly absolutely. at the moment yeah. absolutely
1: and as i said earlier i think the american constitution it, it attempts to drive people toward the center to create centrist outcomes through a whole range of mechanisms one of the ways that that happens successfully is if there's some norms of civility in both formal politics and informal politics mm. kind of in our everyday life. And I do think that um, the internet has allowed us to behave in you know, essentially anonymous ways that are cruel and hateful and they are facilitating and enabling um, a kind of discourse that is growing uncivil and disrespectful and even hateful Uh, in the larger polity. And that's something I think we have to somehow correct.
0: Okay, well, we'll leave it there, I think. And uh, thank you very much, Dan Kreider.
1: You're very welcome, Doug.
0: It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much.